From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, November 3rd. Housing is the backbone of every community. That is the opening line of the latest Moab Area Affordable Housing Plan. It was put together by the local housing task force, which lobbies for fair housing opportunities for everyone in the Moab area. And their plan is important because it's used by local government to set policy around this fundamental need. It's been five years since the plan was last updated, and there are new statistics, analyses, and recommendations. So to find out what's new and different about housing in our community, we check in with Task Force Chair Laura Harris. So there are really two parts to this plan. The first part is about collecting data, and the second part is about outlining goals when it comes to housing in our community. But I want to ask you first, what is a data set that was interesting to you? What is something that you discovered in this process that you've still been thinking about? I think when Moabites are thinking about our housing crisis, we hear around the community, oh, all of our homes are being bought out by second homeowners or investors or um, short-term rentals. And certainly that is the case. I think in 2017 and up until now, we didn't quite have a grasp on just the true impact that that's having um, on our community. So learning the stat, we we dug through the tax records um, and we're hounding the tax assessors at the county, but we were able to nail down that about 32% of our housing stock is for second homes. So that could be people investing or it could be people just wanting a place down in Moab um, to come recreate and visit. That's pretty stark. That is really stark and that's something that has that has changed since the last time this plan was updated. Well that was a value that we didn't even know prior so that was another aspect of the plan is we really uncovered a lot of data that wasn't necessarily being tracked or known about. Um, So that took a while because it's it's really key for our data to be updated and correct in order for city and county and other partners and entities to really know exactly which avenue to move forward with. Speaking of data that we didn't have before, you also went out and surveyed Grand County employers as part of this latest affordable housing plan. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think it was early 2022, we launched a employer-wide survey just because we had been hearing from so many folks that workforce housing or just housing in general was such a deterrent to many of our employers. And we wanted to get hard numbers basically to back up these claims that we had been hearing um, and these experiences of business owners and employers. And I want to say about 90% of the surveyed um, responses said that the lack of affordable housing, workforce housing, seasonal housing um, definitely impacted their business, um, whether they were hindered in their ability to grow or they truly were in like desperate circumstances where they were short-staffed. Right. I'm looking at the number that's in the report, and it says over 76% of Grand County employers reported having lost employees due to the housing shortage. Yeah. That's huge. That's huge. <laughs> yeah. For the stability of our businesses, that's 
really hard. Right. Yeah. And and most of them also stated that if they had the opportunity to increase or create some form of workforce housing um, or more support, that most employers would be willing to do that because they realize that housing is so interconnected to the stability of their business. Did they talk about different barriers to doing that? I think definitely something that just rings true among the entire community, not just the business community, is um, the increased housing costs that we've been seeing in the last couple of years. Um, I think another big highlight in the data and the plan is just looking at the median sales price and the average home value and how it's just very much shot up as much as maybe employers, business owners, or just long-term residents of Moab would like to buy those types of properties. It's generally out of reach. Yeah. And also in the plan, it says that the price has been rising. The average home value price has been rising at an average rate of about 11% every year between 2015 and 2021. And in 2022, you found that the median sale price rose to $625,000. And for context, you know, the area median income in Grand County last year in 2022 for a family of four was about $70,000. And in order to afford a home in Grand County, you need to make at least $148,000. So the Moab Area Affordable Housing Plan has found some big gaps there. Absolutely, especially when we take into account that over 50% of our workforce are in the tourism industry, which tends to have seasonal fluxes and just not as high paying wages as other jobs. Another difference between the 2017 Moab Area Affordable Housing Plan and this current one, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic is in this plan. And the housing task force found that the pandemic exacerbated the existing housing crisis. So can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I think there there are a few aspects of, of this. And certainly all around the country, we're seeing the impacts of COVID. But specifically in Moab, you know, we saw so much outdoor recreation increase in this area. I think it, um, I think more people visited and it enticed more second homeowners, um, investors, seeing, oh, okay, this might be a good place to um, have some roots. Mm. So I think that was part of the reason why the COVID-19 pandemic changed that. I think also we don't fully know the full effect of what's called the Zoom boom, where there's been an increase of individuals who are able to work remotely and maybe have chosen to go across the country and, and move away or, or want to come to a, a recreation place like Moab. Yeah. And so there's certainly folks who we can assume flocked to Moab who may be earning higher incomes than what we are seeing here. Um, mm-hmm. If they're working for like a tech company or sure. the income could be skewing um, the ability to buy a home at a, a higher price, right. etc. Because their income isn't necessarily tied to the local economy. Correct. So that is interesting because it looks like from the data that was collected in this plan that the average median income in Grand County has increased But that could be driven by a number of factors, including potentially people who are part of that Zoom boom or retirees who have more income and are moving here 
and sort of skew that number upwards. Totally. I think it's also important to note in a good way that um, we certainly have been seeing wages increasing, especially among tourism, industry jobs, service jobs, and whatnot. So I do think that is a positive move for residents of our community. But certainly, um, yeah, I think a lot of the skew is probably from um, out-of-towners. You know, speaking of positives, the plan does say that Moab has seen an increase in the number of affordable income-restricted and deed-restricted rental properties in the last few years. It shows that in 2017, there were 394 affordable housing units in Moab. And then as of the end of last year, in 2022, there were 582 units. So those have been increasing. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of the, it's it's great that we have been seeing those increases. I also think and know that there are more of those coming down the pipeline as well, which is exciting. It's community partners like HASU, the Housing Authority, and Community Rebuilds who are consistently um, churning out mutual self-help homes, which are for low and very low income um, residents of our community. And so those have deed restrictions. We also see the Arroyo Crossing Land Trust, which is all for local working families in Greene County, which is great, um, and all have affordability components. And there are also a good number of income-restricted rental units around the community. Some have been around for a long time and others are newer. Uh, The Housing Authority does a lot of low-income housing development. So Mm -hmm. that's where we're seeing um, a good number of deed restrictions hitting the market. But there are a lot of really great um, affordable deed restriction and uh, primary residence Mm -hmm. deed restrictions coming down the pipeline because we, like we were just talking about, Mm -hmm. it's, it's just vital and critical that we are providing housing and keeping housing for our local working families. So the second part of this Moab Area Affordable Housing Plan is goals. And in the goals section, the Housing Task Force has really outlined a couple of different pots. One is data, which we've been talking about, and it's a lot of what this plan provides, which is really helpful for community partners, for government organizations to go after grants or just, you know, really understand what the needs are and where to focus attention But beyond data, other goals are things like stability, subsidy, and sustainability. So tell us why these are organized like this, and is there anything in those three goals that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, absolutely. We analyzed a lot of, you know, what the issues are in terms of our housing situation right now, and kind of were able to um, section off how we would like to approach um, solutions. So, for example, um, stability is kind of an overarching goal or umbrella, as we were calling it, because that's directly tied to keeping our housing stock for uh, safe and long-term for our residents. And so within that, we have specific goals laid out that will encourage stability and specific goals that will help Uh, align different, whether that's the city or the county or community partners, um, to move towards those goals of stability. Mm -hmm. And like, for example, sustainability, it's it's crucial that we're talking about how future development 
and also just more sustainable energy measures are working in tandem with um, affordable housing, especially with water concerns, but also putting into account that monthly rent or mortgages, you also have to factor in utilities and a lot of low-income residents have really struggle um, with paying for those every month it can get really expensive and so how are we able to promote different energy efficiency programs or rebate programs so that we can have you know alternative sources of electricity or gas but also make it equitable so that all residents are benefiting from that so the next steps of the moab area affordable housing plan is that moab city and grand county will likely adopt it. Like, how do you imagine, best case scenario, that this latest affordable housing plan is used in either legislative body? Absolutely. I think specifically the action steps and the goals can certainly help to lead areas of policy change, Um, whether that's diving more into how Deed restrictions Mm -hmm. are looked at, like the city has the actively employed households ordinance, which was a huge win um, last year that how can we continue this? Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm really hopeful. It's been super well received by county and city staff and elected officials. And I'm really excited to just see what the creativity and political backing will do in order to potentially increase and move forward a lot of the steps and goals that we have taken a long time to put together. Laura, chair of Moab's Housing Task Force, thank you so much for being here to tell us about the latest Moab area affordable housing plan, which is likely soon to be adopted by both Moab City and Grand County. Anything else that you think is important to mention to our listeners right now about this document? I think just, you know, in talking through the data, it can seem a bit daunting, like we're just in this deep hole. But I also do want to recognize that there has been so much work that has been done. There's constantly those, you know, single family homes that are being built at Arroyo Crossing right now. And there's been a lot of really great progress at both the county and the city levels to really develop new ordinances and policies that have our local residents in mind. So not all hope is lost. (laughs) Laura Harris, chair of the Moab Area Housing Task Force. The 2023 Moab Area Affordable Housing Plan is meant to guide future policymaking, budgeting, and programs in our community. Since we spoke to Laura, it's been adopted by Moab City. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. Earlier this year, a local resident was arrested for allegedly vandalizing Moab with stickers protesting tourists and UTVs. Emily Arnson speaks with Sophia Fisher from the Times Independent about the case and upcoming trial. Our main story this week has to do with uh, Christian Wright. He's a Moab man who was arrested back in February for allegedly uh, papering uh, signs in downtown Moab with anti-OHV, anti-tourism stickers. And there have been developments in his case. Okay, so this was a vandalism story that sort of expanded into a bigger crime story, correct? Yes. um, You know, when his his house was searched back in February, um, law enforcement officers 
officers also found, allegedly found illegal drugs and drug paraphernalia and uh, guns. So now he has a date for his trial or, or what's the news here? So he's been bound over for trial, which means he's set for trial on 13 of the 14 counts he was charged with. Uh, he does have a date for a status hearing and that's December 5th. But I, as far as I know, his trial date has not yet been set. Well, there are two cases going on here, correct? There's one mm -hmm. case about drug possession, vandalism, gun possession. And then there's another case about the threats that he made to a local official. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, yeah. The second case involved a statement he made to then Grand County Attorney Christina Sloan um, threatening the owners and operators of a local OHV business with violence. Okay. Could you remind listeners what this case was about, sort of, and like the larger problem that this touches on? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's been quite a while since Wright was in the news. So just as a reminder, I'm sure folks remember last year, we were seeing more and more stickers put on road signs and stop signs around Moab that were kind of had anti-tourism or anti-OHV messaging. Um, they were, you know, ranged from don't rent OHVs and got much more serious up to um, UTV noises, child abuse and other kind of disturbing messages that were really populating downtown. And Wright was, you know, allegedly found to be the person responsible for this vandalism in February. He was arrested um, while away from his home, which allowed law enforcement officers to search his home where they um, allegedly found, you know, thousands of these stickers as well as uh, illegal drugs and drug paraphernalia and, and several firearms. Um, and I, you know, this story does touch on a broader trend we've seen in the community, you know, this ongoing tussle over tourism and off-highway vehicles and, and such businesses. They've, these have been things that local governments have tried and in some cases successfully, some cases unsuccessfully to regulate and um, have certainly, you know, caused a lot of passion on, on both sides of, of the issue. Yeah. Okay. So we also, we have a new voice here today. We have Gwen Dilworth who is, what is your title? New reporter? I'm, yeah, I'm a news fellow for the Moab Times Independent. Okay, great. So yeah. Gwen will be with us for a couple months in Moab at yeah, least. for four months. Okay, great. So we have a new voice today. Gwen is going to tell us about a story that she filed this week about childcare. Yeah, so across the state of Utah, we're seeing some pretty big cuts to early childcare funding. And these, um, they were called stabilization grants, were um, kind of pandemic funding that was used to help Childcare providers meet these gaps during the pandemic, especially after they were forced to close in the early pandemic. Um, but these um, grants have dropped 75% at the beginning of this month and will drop to zero by summer of next year. So it's caused a lot of concern. Um, there were, you know, kind of alarm bells sounded by one think tank in June um, that said they believed that maybe 35,000 Utah children would lose childcare and that 640 childcare centers might close. Um, but actually what I'm hearing from providers is that these grants really helped them kind of build infrastructure during the pandemic, and um, they helped providers pay higher wages to their staff and build a more consistent staff. They helped them make improvements to their buildings, um, and there's still concern about what this will mean, but there's, there's some optimism that um, support from local government will also kind of meet that need um, here in Grand County. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if this was all just sort of extra money that was given to these providers during the pandemic, why would it cause closures now? Like, what were they doing before that is so different than what they're doing now? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Grand County is cited by a lot of advocates to be a childcare desert, meaning that there's, you know, this gap between licensed care and number of children that need care. So there was actually a lot of um, crisis before the pandemic even begin began. I guess my question is, like, if, if people are concerned that 
daycares are going to have to close because they're going to lose this funding. But this funding was like a bonus during the pandemic. I mean, what were they doing before if they are not able to survive without this money? Gotcha. Yeah. I think, um, you know, a lot of like state representatives, for example, would say, you know, it's always clear that this was one time funding, but childcare was struggling even before the pandemic. So that's where there's still a gap in, you know, trying to figure out how to meet those I see. gaps in funding. Yeah. Were any childcare providers or like daycare systems set up in Moab from this funding? I don't think that any new providers um, started, but some that were worried about closures were able to keep their doors open during the pandemic. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's my understanding that this this federal funding was also going toward parents and to provide some supplemental income for parents. Yeah, there's another bucket of money that was kind of um, also a part of this federal funding that the state was receiving, and that was for childcare subsidies. So that helped parents pay for sending their children to daycare, for example. Um, And those subsidies are still in place and parents can still receive them. But what's changed is that parents who have have to pay a copay, which is most people, um, no longer have those copays waived. Was there anything else you wanted to mention about that? I think that's all. Okay. Sophia, I think you also wanted to talk about the controversial wedding in Castle Valley that happened a couple months ago. What can you tell us about that? Yes. uh, In the wake um, of a wedding just at the base of Castleton Tower that um, kind of allegedly left trash and waste and and furniture at the site for several days afterwards, the Castle Valley Town Council has sent a letter to the BLM asking the agency to um, ideally ban weddings at that site, and if not, to at least beef up its restrictions and permitting processes. Yeah, and something I think the town had said to the BLM was that they, if camping isn't allowed at this site, why should you allow, you know, a multi-day wedding or like semi-permanent structures. Yeah, can you talk about what that land is typically used for and what's allowed there? Yeah, absolutely. It's at the end of, um, from what I've seen from pictures, a kind of steep, generally four-wheel drive road. Um, I know that area is generally used by hikers and walkers. It's often an access point as well for climbers who are climbing Castleton Tower. Uh, yeah, camping is, is not permitted there, um, according to the, ca- to the Castle Valley officials. Um, and to be clear, to the, the letter of agreement that this couple had with the BLM um, said that the date of the wedding would only be, you know, specific date over Labor Day weekend. I don't think there was an understanding or an expectation that things would be left there overnight or for several days, which was um, part of the issue. Did you talk to any of the people who organized this wedding about why there was trash left there? No, I wasn't able to get in touch with the couple themselves. They're based out of Los Angeles. That's actually why I don't name them um, in the story. Um, And I I did reach out to, there was a rental company uh, from Orange County, California, photographed there removing things the next day. And I I got in touch with them, but they declined to comment for the story as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's interesting. So the town of Castle Valley has asked the BLM to prohibit weddings, but just weddings at the base of Castle Valley? Castleton Tower? Yeah, just weddings at the base of Castleton Tower. And there were some points made, you know, in the uh, town council's discussion during their September 20th meeting when they were talking about sending this letter. Uh, Several folks made the point that weddings are, you know, generally becoming more common in the area, in the Moab area. And there are websites, you know, pumping out really gorgeous photos of the area and of the specific spot. So I think that's why they're concerned specifically about weddings as they see it as this kind of growing use that can involve a lot of different commercial parties. Um, A lot of folks want these kind of minimalist outdoor weddings. And and they made the point that there are plenty of awesome spots to do that in the area that aren't at this kind of the end of this four-wheel drive road out in this absolutely beautiful, delicate area. Yeah. And you talked to one local wedding planner, right? What did they say about 
weddings around here. Yeah, I spoke with Tara Baker. She's the head of Terra Vita Events. They're an event and wedding planning service. And she said, you know, the description that she heard of this Castleton Tower wedding didn't resemble anything that she knew of that, you know, a local planner would have been involved with. She described her processes for helping shepherd folks through their weddings. You know, she says um, setup and takedown always happens the same day as the wedding. She and her assistant are always the first folks at the site and the the last ones to leave. Um, She also made the point that most of the weddings she's worked with have been on private land, but when they are on public land, they tend to be in in already heavily impacted areas, you know, not necessarily a a spot like the base of Castleton Tower. Mm -hmm. Um, If someone is having a wedding on public land, do you have to get a a special permit? Yeah. So if it's on BLM land, you have to sign a letter of agreement outlining, you know, how many people are going to be there, what equipment you'll be using, just kind of some basic, uh, basic parameters there. Those letters of agreement do not authorize alone commercial services. For that, the uh, commercial provider needs a special recreation permit. Uh, and in this uh, letter of agreement with this specific couple, which we were actually able to obtain, um, it did specify that, you know, based on the, the BLM saying, you know, based on what you, the couple have described, it doesn't seem like a permit will be necessary. Um, but town councilors for, for Castle Valley said in the letter and um, in speech at their meeting that it seemed like a lot of details of the wedding had been mis- misrepresented in that letter. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I wonder what the BLM will say in response to the letter. Yeah, they didn't provide direct comment on, on that wedding to us. Um, it'll be interesting to see and Um, some of the parameters that town council members asked for if weddings couldn't be banned at that spot would be to require deposits from folks and fines if they do violate the terms of their letter of agreement. They're also hoping to prohibit most furniture um, and require stricter time specifications and and forbid any vehicle from traveling up there except for kind of typical sized cars because one of the issues is that there did seem to be like an enormous semi truck that had come up the next day on this winding road and was crushing vegetation and cryptobiotic soil Um, so definitely a lot of um, issues perceived there well okay and then Gwen, I think you wanted to talk about the recent cross-country victory story Uh, what can you tell us about that Yeah, definitely. So a sister duo won the 2A state cross-country championships um, last week. Um, That's Cadence Kasbrick. Um, She came in first place, and her sister came in third behind her, um, Ainsley Kasbrick. um, And they led the Grand County High School Red Devils to um, a second-place victory um, at the championships. Yeah. Cool. (laughs) Um, Do you know, has Grand County ever been this close to, I don't know, almost winning... A cross-country event like this? Yeah, I don't know specifically how well they've done in the past, but um, Cadence and Ansley did tell me that when they started running cross-country um, three years ago, they had to beg other teammates to join them so that they could qualify for regionals. They just didn't have enough people to run with them. Um, so it does sound like there's been a big um, improvement in their team since three years ago. Nice. <laughs> did either of the sisters say what it felt like to... Um you know, run alongside each other or... The older sister won. Um, It sounded like it was a really exciting victory for her. Um, And Ainsley, her younger sister, who's a junior this year, um, said she hopes to beat all of Cadence's records next year. (laughs) Good competition between sisters. Yeah. Yeah. That's Gwen Dilworth and Sophia Fisher from the Times Independent. Find more stories at moabtimes.com. Grand County High School is putting on a production of Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Allison Herford of the Moab Sun News describes how the theater department is turning the stage into a whimsical candy land. Yeah, so every year the high school puts on a fall musical. 
Um, this year will be the story of Willy Wonka. And this is kind of relevant right now because Wonka with Timothy Chalamet is going to be out in December. Nice. They're building sets. They're making costumes. How's it going? Did you see any of it? Yeah. So this is going to be a very in-depth set and costume push. Um, so the sets are actually pulling together different set pieces from past musicals. Um, like so many that Marley said that they're going to have a little trivia at the musical trying to see like who can identify the most items from past shows. The biggest one is going to be the background from last year's Adams Family, which if you saw that musical, it's a really cool set. It like has all these rotating elements and there are stairs and this big like gateway. Um, so that's going to be repainted to be, you know, like these iconic scenes like the Bucket family bed and they're kind of like rundown house and then there's going to be like a scene with the Wonka factory in the background of this town and then of course like going into the Wonka factory is this giant fantastical candy making situation so that'll be the set and then they have a ton of costumes to make too so I was really curious about that because Another thing about Willy Wonka is these like iconic moments like Violet Beauregard turning into a blueberry. Yeah. How are they going to recreate that? Yeah. So I talked to Stacy Garrett, who is a volunteer who makes costumes, and she said she actually had that one completed first. Um, so she has this like swelling balloon type of situation. Um, and she's also really excited about the Oompa Loompa costumes. She said those are going to be really cute. But a lot of the kids... And the cast have almost three different costumes that they're going to be changing into throughout the course of the musical because um, there are just like so many different elements of it. Yeah. Did you see any of the did you get did you get to see any of the costumes or any of the set? Yeah. So I saw this set. Mm -hmm. um, they are just starting to paint it this week and they have like they're going to have the big I saw the big pipe that Augustus Gloop gets stuck in um, and they're literally going to have the person who's playing Augustus Gloop crawl up into the pipe and then there's going to be like a plexiglass window that they get stuck in. Um, How are they going to do the chocolate river? That is a good question and it's one that I asked and they're kind of like keeping it they want to keep some of these things oh, a secret so that they're a little bit more fun. Yeah okay but yeah another thing that they're doing is one of the moments in the chocolate factory is seeing all these different doors that would go to all of, you know, Willy Wonka's different experiments. And so what they're going to do is they have all these like styrofoam shapes that they've cut out into door sizes and they'll have students um, carrying those and kind of dancing around each other. So they're all kind of shifting and rotating around. Fun. Uh, and when does the play open? So the play will open on November 16th and then it'll run on the 17th and 18th as well. Marley Francis said she chose this one because she has a lot of really strong male leads this year. So it'll be like a 30 student cast and apparently the students who are playing Willy Wonka and Charlie Bucket and Grandpa Joe are very good. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. Um, okay. LaSalle also is getting a new elementary school. Yeah. LaSalle Elementary School has been around for almost 100 years, but they haven't offered preschool or like education for preschool aged kids since the 80s. And that program was always kind of off and on. Um, so it hasn't been around since the 80s, but on October 17th, 
the head teacher at the elementary school and her staff welcomed five new preschool students. Nice. Yeah. So the preschoolers are going to be at the elementary school. That's it's in the same building. Yes. Yeah. Same building. Um, and one of our reporters who wrote this story talked with the head teacher, Amanda Shoup, who said that she's been working on this um, preschool for the past few years and has been like really seeing a need in LaSalle for it. Like five kids in LaSalle is a significant amount who need preschool education. Just um, compared to the general like number of kids in general or what is that? Right. Okay. Yeah. There are not a ton of kids in LaSalle. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so this was kind of like something that she had been thinking about for a really long time. And LaSalle had really few options for helping their kids become school ready. So she was like talking with other staff from preschools about offering a program in LaSalle, like maybe they would travel to LaSalle, but it never really came together because that would be pretty difficult. Um, So she partnered up with a parent and school paraprofessional named Sandra Marshall, and those two together kind of put their heads together, and they were able to draft a proposal to the San Juan School District, and they finally supported the preschool. Okay, so it's San Juan, is it San Juan County that's supporting the preschool, financially, I mean? Yeah, so actually, there's no additional funding for the preschool besides Mm -hmm. school lunch. Um, So they had to kind of shift around the elementary school afternoon class structure and like where these preschoolers would be able to fit in. Um, So the school will fit four grade levels of students in the afternoon and the preschoolers will arrive like during lunchtime. So there's been like a lot of shifting around because they didn't want to add more workload to the staff. Um, But Shoup said that overwhelmingly the staff was really supportive of adding like this extra little preschool moment during lunch. So they didn't have to hire any new teachers or anything like that. Right, exactly. Um, Yeah, so Shoup herself was granted a temporary license to teach preschool for this trial period. So the preschool is on a one-year pilot program. Allison Hartford, reporter at the Moab Sun News. Find more stories at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes on our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU community-powered radio.